Welcome back to Clinician's Brief, the podcast conversations behind the content. I'm your host, registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And today's conversation is one I've been really looking forward to because it's wrapping up a three-part series that has been so informative and amazing with the brilliant Dr. Tom Shimmerhorn. And this conversation is around an algorithm that is published in the November, December 2020 edition of Clinician's Brief. Welcome back, Dr. Tom Shimmerhorn. Hello. How are you, Becky? I'm excited you're here. I haven't been able to scare you off yet. We're two for two. Um, And I have to say, each conversation I have with you makes me feel less animosity toward endocrine diseases. And so today, I think we're really going to put the cherry on the, the icing here and talk about the actual insulin selection. The last conversation we had about hypoglycemia from your article in the September 2020, we ended with your desire. We decided we would get you a magic cauldron to make a potion of a magic insulin. But unless that has been invented since the last time we talked, we're going to have a conversation today about really this amazing algorithm that you you made that helps give us confidence in insulin selection. So I want to thank you for for the last two conversations and, and tell you how much I'm looking forward to this one. Oh, you're welcome. And I, I, this is the, you're right. This is the cherry. I mean, uh, this is one of the most frustrating things that people experience. And uh, certainly a lot of the questions I get about insulin involves some plea for advice about which is the best or which is the one I should use. And there has no been no magic insulins invented since we last talked. Oh, I was so hopeful. I was hopeful that 2020 would produce at least that for us. But that's okay because we're going to get to a point where we don't need magic because everyone is working with the best baseline education that they can from these conversations we are having. And to that point, this algorithm. Now, number one, I love a good algorithm. I'm a visual organization dependent person. And so it really does help to slow down the thinking and to start to walk through the processes. And I have been, you know, very vocal about my frustrations with endocrine disorders. And I do see in my veterinarians and my colleagues like a love-hate relationship in practice. Is it is that just me or do you see that too? And what is it? No, I think diabetes deserves a love-hate relationship with us. It's a fascinating disorder, but the the details of it can be pretty devilish. And part of that I think is, and this is maybe a good place to start about when we talk about insulin is, you know, we have to think about the tools that we have to work with the disease. Obviously, insulin is a very potent tool and we have a couple different kinds, but it is still one of the only really effective tools that we have for working with diabetes, but it's, we have to use the same tool in, in every single circumstance. And so, that's at least part of the frustration, I think, that people experience when they're worried about whether the insulin's right for their patient. Okay, fair. At least I don't feel quite so alone in that love-hate. And I appreciate that you validate it can be. So I guess for my first question that I was thinking when I was looking through, you know, just this algorithm is what's the difference between, at least for you, between the insulin selection in a sick patient that needs to be hospitalized versus your stable patients who need to be managed at home? That's a really important aspect of managing with insulin that I think is maybe underappreciated, particularly in emergency situations. I I do want to mention that insulin is insulin. One one of the beautiful things about insulin is that it's so similar across species that insulin derived from one species almost always works in another. You know, for years, bovine and porcine insulins were the mainstay of 
treating all diabetics, humans and animals. With recombinant technology, human insulin is now used to treat humans as well as animals. For example, some of the veterinary insulins like ProZinc is essentially a human insulin that's uh, approved for dogs and cats. So insulin has got a lot of cross-species activity. So what we really deal with when we talk about different insulins is not so much the insulin base, but what's been done to it to make it behave differently pharmacologically. And that's where the importance comes in for treating sick patients and, and stable patients. Uh, the biggest difference for sick patients to me is the need to use something that's much shorter acting than the traditional long acting insulins we'd use to treat animals at home. And for me, the reasons, one major reason is short acting insulins like regular insulin or some of the newer ultra fast acting insulins can be given IV and they can be titrated in a CRI so that you're giving only as much insulin as you need until things get stable. And you avoid things like poor subcutaneous absorption or some of the erratic absorption that may accompany the use of a long-term insulin under less than ideal circumstances. And so I need the ability to turn it off as much as I need the ability to use it. And so we can avoid hypoglycemia by being able to turn off a CRI of insulin and allow normal glycemia to return and avoid overdosing that way while you address other problems that may be more pressing like volume regulation and replacement, electrolyte abnormalities, reduced acidosis, et cetera. It goes back to your magic insulin, right? Like if we can have one that just knows when to work and when to not. <laughs> right. And, and until that happens, we have to take over. And, and the best way to do that is to use an insulin that is most like the natural insulin. So insulin produced in our bodies is really a, a hormone with an extremely short half-life. You, you make insulin when you need it. And as soon as you don't need it, you stop making it and what's circulating disappears. That's not the situation for something that's modified intentionally to be a long-acting insulin. And so while once it, insulin like NPH or Glargine, once those insulins are released into the bloodstream, they act just like free insulin. It's the kind of storage aspect of them that gets us into trouble when we're dealing with sick patients. You don't want to have a pool of Glargine, for example, in under the skin of a cat when we might not need it right at that moment. And that is why we need slow releasing encapsulated <laughs> magic as needed. But if it it makes me think um, when you were kind of just speaking to that point about the glaragene in the cat, there's some major differences, I think, in selection between dogs and, and cats. But then you also kind of talked about the ingredients are the ingredients and insulin is insulin. So how much difference is there really in selecting insulin? Is there a major difference in those species? There is and there isn't. And I stand by the kind of the tools are the tools. Insulin is insulin. But I do think that there are circumstances where because of the species characteristics and the characteristics of their diabetes, that certain formulations may be preferred as a kind of a first choice over others in a species like dog and cat. Ultimately, the goal, of course, is to control glycemia as best we can over the entire day. A lot of times, a single insulin product, one, is never going to replace physiologic insulin. Two, is not going to have all of the characteristics that we would want. And 
at least in people in the past, that's led to the need for multiple products being used on a daily basis to try to control both short-term changes in glucose and long-term changes in glucose. Typically, that's not an approach that we take with animals, and we've probably imposed that on ourselves for multiple reasons, at least not the least of which is convenience for the owners. But it's something we, you know, monotherapy, a single insulin type is something we've worked around when treating dogs and cats. So say an, an animal like a dog where they may have a different meal schedule than a cat, or they may have different levels of activity or periods of activity. You know, traditionally people have reached for a long acting insulin, which would include even so-called intermediate insulins like NPH uh, or Lenti to, to treat dogs. There's been a lot of work suggesting that a long-acting insulin like Glargine or Detamir is more appropriate for cats. But in fact, you could use any insulin in cats and you can use any insulin in dogs. And sometimes we end up doing that if the first choice options don't seem to be a good fit for that patient. You know, I think we've had dogs that we've started on intermediate acting insulin, NPH or Lenti for various reasons, selecting one over the other, sometimes for cost, sometimes for availability, sometimes for continuity, and then found down the road that maybe something like a long acting insulin would be more appropriate for that dog. And so those dogs get switched over to long acting insulin. And likewise, the same process can occur in cats that get started with something long acting it just is too much for them. And then we end up fiddling with the dose and in some cases changing their insulin over. So I think there's places to start, but you have to have an open mind that it's not the only way to manage the diabetes in those species. You do have to think outside the box and really think, what tool do I actually need to smooth this curve out, even though it's going to be an insulin, but it could be a different type of insulin. When I think about the different types of insulin, you know, the next thing that comes to mind is cost. And there's been so much news and publicity around the cost of insulin and, and skyrocketing. How do, you, how do you tackle that with your clients, especially when it comes to changing? I mean, it's hard to ask them to buy a bottle of this or that that might be hundreds of dollars when there are less expensive options or you're going to, you know, that that might not be the, the best long term. Any tips for that? I don't know that anybody has a, a tip beyond this is kind of the way I do it. That fear of, of imposing a high cost on folks for something that might not work, I think is one of the reasons that we don't switch insulins as often as it might be indicated. And in our situation, and I don't think we're unique, but in, in our area of the country where we have people come from a long way away and we may be dealing with availability problems, not so much from the standpoint of they can't get it. It's just that maybe their veterinarian prefers one product and that when they leave us, they're going to only have that product available. So we, we work with them on that too. But yeah, um, I, I don't like to have people spend a lot of money for a few doses only to find out it doesn't work. And, you know, there are some changes coming. There's advent of biosimilar insulins, which, you know, behave like a particular insulin, even though they're not exactly like it. Uh, one recent example of that is Glargine went off its patent and there are biosimilar insulins that mimic Glargine that are going to essentially compete with it for availability and can be substantially less costly. We don't necessarily have any experience in terms of published stuff with biosimilars in, in animals, but really there's no reason to think they wouldn't work or be an option for the future. So some of the obstacles currently encountered 
to switching insulins or asking people to buy a lot of insulin when they're using a small dose might not be there. So I like to start with the idea that the right insulin is the right insulin and the cost is definitely a concern, but it doesn't necessarily change the medical benefits or the recommendation. Now, if cost is a concern for the owner and we need to work with them on that, then we can certainly see what would also work. And so I like to start the recommendations without considering cost, but the implementation of it then has to take into cost and availability, including such things like where they will be following up. And if we have people say that travel a lot, are they going to be able to get refills when they need it? Things like that. Yeah, there's so much to think about that I think is outside of the box. And you mentioned that a couple of times, right? That outside of the box thinking. And I don't know that it is our strong suit always. And ironic since we're talking about an algorithm, which is that was one of the hardest algorithms to write, actually. And, And I think of examples where, you know, we've seen patients for evaluations and they have what would be at best described as an unconventional insulin protocol. And, you know, they've arrived at that through a lot of trial and error. And when you evaluate those patients and you say, wow, you know, they've got good quality of life. They've got all their markers for diabetes are in line. There's not really a lot of complaints, yet they have an insulin dosing regimen that you would never have thought of on your own, you think, well, why would I change that? You know, it's, it seems to be working. So this would be like an animal that is uh, maybe regular in the morning and then an intermediate in the evening, or they get an insulin that should be given once a day, they get it three times a day, they get insulin every other day or some other kind of less than ideal circumstance, but it works for that patient. And sometimes you just have to at least applaud the folks who got there to come up with that plan, even though it probably wouldn't be something you see in a textbook. I want to hear a little bit more about why it was so hard. Like, I appreciate that it was hard for you. And I, and I love that, that you're sort of saying, you know, when it's unconventional, it's gotten there some kind of way and it's probably been important. If you had a case come to you like that, then are you looking to pull that apart or to, to you know, not mess with what's working? I would never mess with success in that circumstance, you know, yeah. because I think it's really a a perfect example of someone, not me, someone else meeting the patient's needs through what was probably a trial and error approach. And they've managed to come up with a protocol that works for that patient. I think when you're writing an algorithm, you're really trying to write something that works for the majority of patients. But the reason it was the hardest algorithm is because this is a situation where Insulin is almost always tailored to some extent to an individual. It's very, very difficult to tell someone to do it this way and do it that way because on any given patient, that might not be the formula for success. I think it's more appropriate to say, understand what insulin is, understand what it does, understand the pharmacology of the products that you have available to you, and then apply that information to what you know about the patient. And sometimes it is trial and error. You know, we have patients that, for some reason, get much more hyperglycemic overnight than they do during the day. In that circumstance, you know, if you're really worried about that, or maybe they're symptomatic overnight, asking to go out, things like that, maybe they get a different dose in the evening than they do in the morning. You know, so there's it, it's not a one size fits all situation. 
but understanding the tool that you have to use and the toolbox that you have is probably vital for implementing the, the use of the tools. Okay, so speaking of the tools in the toolbox, there have been a ton of advancements, we know. Um, and I've seen, you know, increasing, you know, use of AMP, like we talked about in, in a previous, um, you, you just touched on it, and I, I did everything I could not to talk about it, knowing that it was coming up, these interstitial monitors, and better, better maybe ways of monitoring. What's happening on our side in the veterinary industry with leaning into these, these things? Do you have experience with them? I do. And I, I just want to maybe just make a distinction here um, that would be worthwhile thinking about. There, there's a subtle difference between monitoring what insulin is doing and monitoring a diabetic. Um, you know, if I wanted to know what insulin is doing, in other words, the pharmacodynamic profile of insulin, which is what effect over time is insulin having on glucose, the only way to really monitor that is to measure glucose over time after insulin's been giving. And so what we used to do with glucose curves, and it's what gets done with uh, interstitial glucose monitoring. But that's a little bit different than monitoring a diabetic where other factors would taken into consideration, diet, weight, concurrent disease, things like that. So those type of things, even though they're intimately interrelated with glycemic control are still influenced by things other than insulin. So when I think about continuous inter interstitial monitoring, I'm thinking primarily of understanding what insulin is doing in that patient. And so if I think about what a glucose curve tells me, it should be the same information. But the difference is glucose curve tells me about what happened on one single day at one single dose in one single patient. Whereas interstitial monitoring can provide an averaging effect by measuring multiple, multiple glucose concentrations over as, as long as 14 days. So that when you get a daily curve, that's the average of 14 days and multiple, many more glucose measurements from a, a interstitial monitor that's a lot more reflective of what's been going on in that patient than just a single curve. So it provides the same information, but I think it gives you more confidence that it's reflecting an average, which gives you more power to make decisions about. And I think one thing that people who start to use interstitial monitoring start to say is that their confidence in making decisions about dosing or a decision to switch insulin is higher because they have information they always wish they had and now they have it. It brings me really to the next thing I'm like really interested in knowing your opinion on and, and is that the best testing techniques. How often are you using A1C versus fructosamine um, and, and getting those long-term when we don't maybe have a, a tool like this? No, the, and, and again, I think when you talk about glycated proteins, you are talking about uh, another tool to monitor a patient along which of which interstitial monitoring is also a tool and clinical signs a tool and anything else you want to think of can be a tool you're trying to get a comprehensive look at what the patient has been doing none of these things are very predictive by the way you know one of the big drawbacks of a glucose curve is you use glucose curve to make a decision about dosing and what you're really saying is i believe that 
this piece of information today is telling me what the patient needs three months from now. And, and so those things are always going to be somewhat retrospective. It's a little bit different with interstitial monitoring because some of that's in real time. But ultimately, if you're looking back at two weeks, you still have the same exact situation. So I would look at A1C or, or fructosamine as, are they, are they going to provide me data I couldn't get otherwise? Um, and also, in some circumstances, maybe preferable. And I think one example would be, let's just say you have your stable diabetic patient that's maybe coming for uh, intermittent follow-up. And I usually like to have my patients three to four month follow-ups. Some patients or clients won't do that. They may come every six months, some even longer, who knows? But let's just say they're appearing at, after four months or so since the last follow-up. Well, an, an A1C there can give you really good insight into what's been going on over a good portion, up to eight weeks of the, of the previous couple of months since you saw the patient and it might provide a lot of valuable information. If you were to apply an interstitial monitor on that patient, you'd be obligated to kind of follow them forward for two weeks and you'd end up making it be two appointments instead of one. So a lot depends on the client. A lot depends on what works for, for that patient in terms of achieving goals. So if, if I have an intermittent patient coming in every couple months, they're stable, they're on a relatively stable dose of insulin, something like a, a fructosamine or an A1C, along with an exam and maybe a discussion um, about interstitial monitoring pros and cons might be enough. If I'm worried that the patient has something going on and there might be a need for a dose adjustment, that's where an interstitial monitor might be very helpful. And then you see them in, as part of a follow-up to make uh, recommendations based on the monitoring info. So that's kind of hopefully addresses your question about mixing and mo uh, mixing and matching these things to the right circumstance. Well, it does. And what I also love is kind of the, the, the very brief statement you made, but that it was poignant to me is that it's not predictive. We can probably base some of it off of what has been going on, but I, I appreciate the idea of, of knowing what has been historically happening is not necessarily going to dictate or differentiate the future. Right. right. And we've, we've discussed this uh, when we, when we talked about curves in the past about, you know, some of the, whether you believe the value that comes from the curve and, and the inherent variability of curves. And I say inherent because it really is biologic variability in some circumstances. It's just that patient on that day is a different patient than it'll be tomorrow because of circumstance. It's at the vets, maybe some, something else is going on with it. You know, it, it, you're taking a, a very, precise snapshot of the patient and it tells you what's going on that day but it doesn't tell you a lot about what's been happening at home and it certainly doesn't tell you a lot about what needs are going to be in the future so you know we in veterinary medicine have traditionally used curves and in some instances interstitial monitoring particularly if you're looking at only backwards and not using it as a real-time monitor we've used it to make broad adjustments in insulin needs and dosing rather than minute to minute um, adjustments. And I'm not, a, I'm not necessarily advocating for minute to minute monitoring in dogs and cats. I think it's frustrating for everybody involved and we don't know enough to say whether it's worth it. But what I am saying is it is still one of the, one of the drawbacks of the glucose curve. One of the reasons a lot of people say, I don't use glucose curves 
is because it cannot provide the precision of information that you need to make good choices on. I think some of that precision is improved if you use interstitial monitoring, but you couple it with a measure like A1C or fructosamine that actually provides an averaging type effect over the previous several weeks or months, then you start to get a bigger picture of where you're at. Clinicians' brief diagnostic algorithms are a step-by-step diagnostic tool to jog your memory and keep you organized. Get the guidance you need to work up cases with straightforward guidelines for testing and case management. To purchase your copy, visit cliniciansbrief.com backslash algorithms. Okay, so I, th- I I guess I just want to shift a little bit here and talk about sort of the curability, the future of diabetes. I mean, I, there are people out there who see diabetes as curable. Um, tell me your thoughts. Well, we started out with magic, I guess. <laughs> End with it. Um, uh, curable, I don't like the word. I, I would put it in air quotes if, I, if you could see me now. Diabetes is curable if you can replace pancreatic function with something that replicates the original. But I don't think that's a practical way to look at it. And I don't think it's a realistic way to look at veterinary diabetes, at least not for the foreseeable future. But I think it's a a disease you could die with instead of from. I think it's controllable. I like to think about it as a chronic disease because I think it puts the patient in the mindset or the owner and the patient in the mindset of needing to maintain a relationship with the veterinarian and needing to maintain uh, a vigilance, if you will, about the patient's health. And that it kind of serves to remind them that every day they're taking care of their pet is an important day. And so quality of life is obviously our number one goal in treating these guys. And the good news is once you get things going and the patient's under reasonable glycemic control, you can actually have good quality of life for a long, long time sometimes. So, you know, I'd never want them to forget that their animals are diabetic because forgetting is when you start to make mistakes. The one thing I do want to maybe address with relation to curable is diabetic remission in cats. And I like remission as a better term than the concept that the cat's no longer diabetic. I think there are circumstances where you can have dog and cat, a transient diabetic state that resolves a circumstance like, say, severe pancreatitis or something where if they turn out to be a transient diabetic and they never really look back, then let's call it cured. But I think if we think about the traditional diabetic dog or cat where the result is some problem with insulin production or pancreatic failure, it's not likely to be a curable disease. When I think of a cat in remission, I think it's important to note that what we're really saying is the cat doesn't require insulin anymore. But I think to think about that cat as anything other than a diabetic risks the possibility of uh, not monitoring it carefully enough so that if diabetes were to return, you'd miss it. So I point to evidence that kind of supports that view is that when they've looked at cats in remission and challenged them with glucose, 
they still have abnormal glucose sensing. They have abnormal insulin responses. So they've kind of returned more to a pre-diabetic state where they don't need insulin. They can still produce it on their own, but their insulin secretion is either disordered or the response to glucose is, is slightly abnormal. And so they're essentially a non-insulin requiring diabetic and the possibility of relapse is there for all those cats that enter remission. So again, I, even though the owners may be relieved that their cat doesn't need insulin, I like to think of those cats as a very well-controlled insulin-independent diabetic. Um, and I would keep an eye on it to make sure that that doesn't change. I love that. And so we wouldn't say it's a cure and they would still be considered diabetic, just controlled. Absolutely. If you think a lot of those cats are, uh, are still receiving uh, a, a diet that they were placed on to help control their diabetes. And so even though they're in remission, they may still be eating a diet that was meant to help with their glycemic control and may in fact be part of their remission. I guess on the opposite end of that, I kind of wonder about resistance. So for these long-term patients, do, do we see the opposite, which is a resistance to any one particular insulin? Insulin resistance to me is more a physiologic resistance to insulin action rather than to a particular product. And human studies have showed that certain insulins are immunogenic, um, that they could produce antibodies that would impede insulin's response. Um, a lot of those studies were for insulins that may have been a kind of early days, insulins that were from other species that may have had other impurities that might have caused an antibody response. But even in the old days, that was kind of poorly described in dogs and cats. And if there are antibodies to insulin, if anything, um, they could be related to the pathology of diabetes to begin with rather than to insulin they've been given. So I don't anticipate true resistance to a particular product or formulation of insulin. I do think you can get physiologic or in some cases pathologic insulin resistance from things like obesity, uh, onset of Cushing's disease or acromegaly and dog and cat respectively, or uh, long-term steroid use or something along those lines. But it's not really to the product, it's more uh, or less to the actual hormone action. So I wouldn't worry about it in terms of, you know, you, if you start a, an animal on one type of insulin, it may be able to receive that its entire life without a consequence. Okay, that's fair. That's very good to know, too. So and I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you about is stem cells. You know, we're seeing stem cells being used in the human side in, quote unquote, curing diabetes, right? So do we see anything in this? And are you guys researching anything along the lines of stem cells in your lab that we can know about? No, I'm not. I'm a, not a really a stem cell researcher. I think it's an incredibly, it's fascinating. And the potential is there. What kind of shape or what face that potential might have, I don't know. Uh, there are people working on trying to develop a way to transplant islets from a donor to uh, another patient. There's also efforts, which is more transplantation medicine than stem cells. And there are people who are trying to coax stem cells into becoming beta cells and producing insulin. Um, I mean, I think there's been inroads and there's been disappointments uh, no matter how it's been done. But, you know, I think it would be a wonderful way to, to go because until we could actually replace lost cells and the lost cells 
would have to be replaced with cells that could do exactly the same thing, which is a really precise and exquisite function of minute to minute, second to second monitoring of glucose, coupling that to insulin. And that's, you know, that's a real, that's a lot to ask for something that it could be made in the lab, um, which is, you know, one of the challenges that people are seeing. So, and I think maybe it's just one of the, of a hundred challenges, uh, you know, where do you put these cells? How do you protect them from the immune system? All that stuff is really important. So yeah, stem cells, great, and, but I'm not working on them, but I'm glad somebody is. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a really challenging field. Well, we'll have you back to talk about that when we know stem cells are doing their thing. And there's so much to talk about here. I could keep you all day, but I know I can't. So we go to our Keep It Brief segment and very little pressure there. I guess my question to you here was if you had to summarize in a one, two, three, what would you say are the three keys to insulin selection and management? Well, you know, I, I'd like to tell you I thought about this um, because I think it's one of those things that if I had to pick important things to tell my owners and my uh, referring veterinarians and the, anybody I when I'm talking about this, I often talk about goal-oriented treatment because I think that helps put you on the right track. But if I had to pick three, it would be first, I think, match insulin to the patient's needs. So you have to understand what the patient needs and how their particular body in general responds to insulin. And, you know, sometimes that can be a lifestyle of a pet, you know, a, a dog that's a hunting dog or a fly ball dog or some other super active breed is going to have much different insulin needs than a sedentary dog. Second would be consistency. Um, and that's consistency at every level, not only with insulin dosing and scheduling, but also consistent relationship to feeding, consistent relationship to exercise. In other words, we have a lot of different patterns in daily life that are intersecting and we're trying to treat one of them, which is glycemia, but glycemia is affected by all of the patterns. So as consistent as we can make that patient's day, the better for our success in, in using insulin to treat it. And probably number three would be monitoring because as I said during our talk today, really the only way you can tell what insulin's doing in your patient precisely is to do some sort of glycemic measurement like a direct measurement of glucose with either a glucose curve or interstitial monitoring or something but you can also look at the indirect effects of good glycemic control which might be patient clinical signs patient health quality of life and you can kind of find in between information between today and yesterday by using glycated protein so a monitoring protocol tailored for that patient is is my number three choice well, those are pretty fantastic one, two, threes, and they go along perfectly with this well-organized, visually amazing, yet apparently difficult to write insulin selection in diabetic cats and dogs. The um, algorithm can be found in the November-December 2020 Clinician's Brief Edition. Dr. Shimmerhorn, I have had such a great time talking with you these, these last three episodes and learning so much more about this that I promise you I will have you back to be a record-breaking four-time guest. <laughs> I, will, I will gladly accept that. I, I, I would love to be a four-time guest. 
<laughs> well, I think our listeners would love it as well. And we thank you so much for your time. And again, these outstanding articles, you can find them from all three episodes between the September, November, and December 2020 editions of Clinician's Brief. Thanks, Becky. It's been great. Thanks again to today's guests for joining us. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. We appreciate if you leave us all the stars. You can listen to podcasts as well on our website at cliniciansbrief.com backslash podcasts. You can find us at facebook.com backslash cliniciansbrief, on Twitter at cliniciansbrief, and on Instagram at clinicians.brief. You can also drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief, the podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ustry, sound by Randall Stupka, hosted by me, Becky Mosser, with special thanks to production assistant Michelle Moncrez.